we removed 15,000-ish, a little bit more than that, actually, 15,000 subscribers from, from our list, which had grown to over 90K. And my goal for the year was I'm going to hit 100K by the end of the year, right? I was like pumped on that from original goal was 50K. We hit that in July. And then I was like, all right, 100K. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Proof of Work podcast brought to you by No Ramp. Today, I'm here with another amazing guest. Today, I'm here with Michael Hauk, founder of Hauk's Newsletter and founder of Launch House and a, a few other ventures as well. Michael, how are you doing today? Good, man. Thanks for having me, Ben. appreciate it. This is, uh, is going to be fun. going to be a ton of fun. I, I think a great place to start would, would be if you could introduce yourself for the audience. Yeah, sure. So, hey, everyone. I'm Michael Hauk. I, after working in big tech at Airbnb and Uber for you know a little over four years, building products there, uh, jumped over into the startup world and founded Launch House, which was a membership club for founders. We were backed by Andreessen Harwitz and some other great investors. Also co-founded a venture fund uh, where we made over 50 investments in the founders that we met through, uh, through, the, through the startup. And then uh, left that company uh, about a year ago. And since then have been building Hauk's newsletter, uh, which is a weekly advice column for startup founders. Uh, it's read by over 70,000, 75,000 founders uh, each week. Uh, we send two emails. One's a deep dive on Saturdays about a specific topic to help you build. And then on Tuesdays, we curate our best resources of the week from you know what I find on Twitter and also just uh, from my own, uh, my own network. So um, add a bunch of trend analysis on top of that. Also currently building Megaphone, which is an engagement network for uh, people who want to grow on X and LinkedIn. Basically, you share posts with us and we route them to the best creators who are currently online in your niche um, and they amplify it to their audience. So you get exposure, followers, impressions, and hopefully leads for your business as well. Amazing. Yeah, you've got you have so many ventures going on. You've had great experience. And you actually mentioned what, what I wanted to chat about first was your experience at Airbnb and Uber. You know, you join these companies and I assume you learned an incredible amount. Um, two of, you know, the greatest start, modern startups of our time, I would say. Yeah. What, what were your biggest takeaways from working at those behemoths? You know, it was interesting. Um, I was on small like incubatory teams at both. So at Uber, I was part of the early team at Uber Eats when we were only in a couple markets um, in the US and, and uh, one or two in Canada at the time. And then when I joined Airbnb, I was product manager on Airbnb Plus, which was uh, a totally new uh, venture. We'd only been around for a little bit of time within the company. So both of those experiences were great because you got to get a feel for building from zero to one, but you had the backing of this like giant behemoth behind you, um, which was a, 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 an interesting experience. But the, the thing that I really took away from it was how different the cultures were. So at Uber, there was a ton of autonomy. You could really go in there and make decisions and launch things and do experimentation um, on, on the live app and get results and bring it back and feedback and, you know, can evaluate it from there. At Airbnb, things are much more structured and you have to go through a lot more channels to actually make changes to the product. And at the time I was thinking, you know, when I went from Uber to Airbnb, I was like, well, you know, as an employee, I really like Uber's autonomy uh, a lot more, right? But when I think about it from the founder perspective, like Brian Chesky, he's designed this company in a way that is very singular, has the same vision throughout the entire company, a lot of consistency within the product and the experience. And so as a founder, I actually respect what Brian has done a lot. Uh, but as an employee, I personally, maybe this is because I, I became a founder and that was kind of trying to come out in me sooner. But I, um, I really enjoyed working at Uber for that reason. Yeah, it's interesting that companies can become successful, you know, 
unbelievably successful with completely different cultures. And that's what's so cool about, I, I think, just creating businesses and then scaling businesses because there's no one way to win. Yeah, that's a thousand percent true. Um, you need to do what is going to work best for you and the team that you establish and also for the product that you're building, right? Different products require different styles, different levels of user involvement, um, different product development processes. Um, so yeah, hundred percent, there's, there's no, uh, there's no one way to, to do it. Um, and, and multiple styles can totally work. It's interesting looking from the outside, your success to me, at least has seemingly come from communities or products and services centered around communities. I'm curious why you have chosen this to be your focus. Why, why do you think that's enabled you to win? And, and maybe that, maybe you don't even think it has enabled you to win. I'm just curious. No, I mean, look, it's true, right? Um, Megaphone, we've got a strong creator community. Uh, Launch House was a community. The newsletter has a founder community built on top of it now as well, like a membership uh, that we do. So I, I think it's true. You know, I've built communities throughout my entire career, even before I got into startups. Um, I don't talk about this that much, but when I was uh, in college and then a little bit after college, I was a DJ and we built local music communities in a few different cities. And then when I was at Uber, you know, Uber Eats was super young. And so we were trying to really build strong sense of driver community um, in the markets that we were launching. And I just saw the power of that. I saw how much it gets people bought into what you're doing, you know, instilling the mission in them, making it seem like more than just some product or service that they're paying money for less transactional. That creates a really strong bond. And I think it's a really defensible bond as well. And so when I thought about how do I want to enter the startup world as a founder myself, looking for ways to build the strongest, most defensible bonds were, uh, were definitely top of mind for me and, and have carried through. Makes a lot of sense. It, so the DJing was probably one of your first businesses. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. That's, that's, everyone has that, that founding story of, oh, you know, when I was younger, I did this to, to get that entrepreneurial experience. I love, just because you mentioned it, I'm curious, could you chat about that experience a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia and there was a local music scene there. Um, this was back in, you know, the uh, early 2010s, right? Um, and electronic music was just becoming mainstream and popular in the United States at the time. So some friends and I basically built up a local music scene in Philadelphia. We had a following, we had like secret venues that we throw uh, events at and passwords and um, made it this really fun, engaging experience for them. Um, and then, you know, branched out to a couple other cities as well. And yeah, I mean, that was, that was the first real community based business that I built. Um, and then, um, another early business that I had was like a, a, a developer agency. I was an engineer before I became a, you know, did everything else before I became a founder and, um, had a dev agency. We also did some digital marketing. Uh, this was kind of around the same time for just local clients in the Philadelphia area, way, way back. You know, diving into more of your your current focus or one of them, comparing and contrasting a newsletter business to some sort of traditional SaaS uh, business, mm. maybe. You know, what are the biggest differences? Yeah, I mean, newsletter business is really cheap to acquire a customer and you can do it easily through a ton of different channels, right? So we do content marketing on X and LinkedIn, just through my accounts. We do a lot of paid acquisition um, and you can, you know, CPAs are under $2, right? Which I think a lot of SaaS companies would love <laughs> for that to be true. Um, so getting people in the door, getting people to, you know, maybe not commit fully, but to at least like try out what you're doing um, is pretty easy to do. There's, there's low friction to get people to 
get you in their inbox. It's then staying there. That's the hard part, right? Um, I think when people buy a product, there's a, a higher barrier to entry, but also you kind of know that you want to use the product, right? And you know, obviously churn can be a problem, but um, I think the fulcrum of where you want to put your attention for the newsletter needs to be really strongly on quality content to keep churn low uh, and keep open rates and click rates high uh, versus for a product, there's more friction earlier in that process to get people in the door. Um, so I would say that's that's one difference. We've been lucky that our churn has been pretty good because people have liked the, the content. There's not a ton of great modern content for founders from people who have recently both been a founder and an investor. Um, so that stood out, but I would say that's that's a difference between the two. I think what's so cool about newsletter businesses is if you have a, an extremely well-defined niche, and you just said that, you, recent founder, great startup content. I mean, just that alone, and a great niche. And so you're going to have a, a great following. Um, and that's what everyone's like, newsletter businesses are dead and, and there's <laughs> a bubble. Sure, maybe in some sense, but not if you have a very, very defined niche. Yeah. And I also think that the startup, like entrepreneur, founder niche in general is one that really respects like credibility. Um, I think more so than, than some other niches, right? If you are an early state, <clears throat> excuse me, an early career marketer, it's, you know, not easy, but you can go out and build a brand, a personal brand and newsletter brand in the marketing space, talking specifically about what you're doing, curating resources that other people might just not want to spend the time doing. But I think within the startup world in particular, founders, their time is so valuable, right? And there's so many people who are trying to get their attention and give them information that if you really want to stand out through that noise, you need to have the credibility. And so I don't think I could build the business that I'm building right now on the newsletter side without having done what I did with Launch House first. 100%. You mentioned churn being very, I mean, no one wants churn, right? Obviously. <laughs> You did something really interesting recently. I saw you post about it. Um, you actually removed subscribers. And that's, you know, obviously extremely counterintuitive. <laughs> I'd love to hear from you about, you know, what was what was the thinking and, and decision making behind that? Yeah, I mean, look, it was it was a little scary, right? Because we removed 15,000 ish, a little bit more than that, actually 15,000 subscribers from from our list, which had grown to over 90k. And my goal for the year was I'm going to hit 100K by the end of the year, right? I was like pumped on that from original goals, 50K. We hit that in July. And then I was like, all right, 100K. And having to abandon that was really was really tough because you, know, you focus on something for months and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, actually, maybe this doesn't matter like I thought it did. But yeah, what we did was we looked at the subscribers who just weren't super engaged, right? Hadn't opened an email for a while, never clicked on anything. And we have a weekly process that automatically goes through and kind of does this at, at some level of engagement. But we we made a deeper cut and we were like, we only want the subscribers who are actually going to be super engaged, actually want what we're trying to put out there into the world. And I think the reason for this was because, you know, we want to know who we're speaking to and we want them to get a clear message from us. We don't want our data to be sort of diluted by subscribers who are just passively there. You know, we'd spent a lot of time and, and money growing with um, with Sparkloop's um, uh, network, their uh, referral, newsletter referral network. So for those who don't know, if you sign up for a newsletter and they have the little widget that's like, hey, check out these other newsletters. Uh, if you subscribe to the other ones, then those people actually pay money to the person who's referring them. Um, 
Sparkloop's one product, Beehive also has their own product as well. We've used those and I think they, the subscribers who get confirmed through that process actually open the emails at a really high rate, but their click rates are, are super low. So what that tells me is that they're sort of passive. They're not there for you. You're sort of just like an add-on to the newsletter they wanted to subscribe to. And so I think having some percentage of your audience come from that channel can be good because as I said, the open rates are, are really good. So people are at least checking out what you're doing, but we saw that a high portion of them just weren't as engaged as we wanted them to be. And so for us, it was, um, it was important to know who our audience is and actually speak directly to that audience. It's a really cool decision because it's very difficult to do, obviously, but you, you're positioning for the longer term, right? You're playing the long game. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're selling our membership, right? Our annual founder membership where people get access to fireside chats, IRL meetups, uh, a digital community, uh, courses. Uh, they can purchase the courses on a one-off basis on their own, or they get them all for free as part of the membership. Um, an accountability uh, product that we're, we're launching actually next week. Um, so there's all these things built into this membership and we're trying to push that really hard through the newsletter. And we just want to know like, Hey, of the people who actually are candidates to join the membership, what percentage of them are interested in it? Are we doing a good job communicating it? And if we're getting mixed data from folks who aren't in that niche, it, it makes it, makes it a harder job on our side to know that we're doing the right thing. Absolutely. And you, you started mentioning some of the metrics that I thought some of them I see as vanity metrics. And I'd be curious of what, someone who has built a, a sizable newsletter business, which are the vanity metrics, which are the ones people, uh, newsletter founders should actually care about? Yeah. I mean, it kind of depends on what your goal with the newsletter is and what your structure is, right? So if you're, if you're selling ads in the newsletter, then you are in some way beholden to your sponsors and you want to deliver great results to them so that they continue working with you um, and you attract new ones easily. So in that case, your sponsor click-through rate, your sponsor CTR specifically uh, matters a lot. Um, but as far as your actual engaged audience goes, you know, open rate, total vanity metric, especially now uh, Apple has made changes to their privacy protection through Apple Mail. So anyone who uses Apple Mail will automatically show up in your newsletter as having opened 100% of your emails, even if they don't actually read any of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, my friend, Matt McGarry, who, who handles our, our Facebook and uh, Instagram and Twitter ads, and you know, he runs an agency called Grow Letter that's really, really great. I highly recommend them. Um, he put me onto this a couple months ago. And yeah, it's, it's a killer. If you have a large contingent who's reading through Apple Mail, your open rate is so inflated, right? And you can filter them out by segmenting your audience and seeing who opens 100%, but never clicks on anything. But with that said, at this point, open rate is, is tough to, to make a case for as being like an important metric for, the, for a newsletter. Instead, you know, your click-through rate, your, your sales, if you're selling products through there. So for example, I have consulting, I have Megaphone, I have the membership. Um, and you know, we have our fundraising support process that we do all that goes through. And I want to see how many people are clicking on those things. How many people are clicking on the services that we think are targeted directly to our, our core, our core readership. So clicks matter and specifically clicks on the things that you're actually trying to offer more than just like, you know, the links and the tweets and stuff that you link to throughout the, the pieces. You can also look at things like, you know, what's your uh, monthly revenue per reader, right? So, um, you know, there's a lot of like revenue style metrics that you can look at. That's just an easy one that I would, I would flag, but um, yeah, I'd say clicks and, and revenue are, are the two big things we look at. 
That's great. And it's one of those, it depends kind of answers for sure. Uh, but I was just curious on, on your specific experience. So that's great. You know, starting a newsletter, as you said, unbelievably easy. Anyone can set it up, especially with companies like Beehive making it, I mean, stupid simple. <laughs> but 90% of big newsletters, they get their subscribers from paid ads. And that's how they continue to grow. And they're kind of, someone could even say like beholden to these ads to keep growing. That's one, that's a whole different conversation. What I'm asking is like, how can someone start gaining a following starting from absolutely zero? Yeah. I mean, I started my newsletter from absolutely zero a little over a year ago, right? I went full time on it in Q1 of 2023, but uh, I'd started it a couple months before that just as a side project from, from launch house. Um, and yeah, I mean, I started through content marketing and just getting my friends to subscribe to it, basically just like blasting them, annoying them, just saying, Hey, you're a founder, check this out. Uh, and then I progressed advertising it on my Twitter, um, and my LinkedIn, you know, I am fortunate to have audiences on those platforms already. Um, so that was helpful. If you don't have that, what I'd recommend doing is getting a few pieces of, of good content out there and then immediately starting to form relationships with uh, other newsletter creators who are of a similar size in your space. So, if you're doing a marketing newsletter, find a couple other people who are early in their marketing newsletter journey and just, you know, feature yourself as newsletters to recommend when people sign up, feature yourself in each other's newsletters instead of having them run ads because you're too small. You're not going to be able to run ads. No sponsors are going to put the time into to work with you. So instead of that, advertise each other's newsletters, cross pollinate your audiences. And as you grow, you know, take your shot, shoot your shot, apply, uh, try to get in contact with bigger and bigger newsletter creators and, and just keep doing that. That's what we did, honestly, until we got to, I think like 10K, the vast majority of our subscribers came from um, content marketing uh, through Twitter and LinkedIn, and also uh, through recommendations, back and forth swaps with other, other newsletter creators. Once we hit 10K, then you know, some sponsors started to take a look at us, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't every week we had a sponsor. Um, the big thing that kind of got us to that next step from 10 to 25K or so, which is when the agencies and the sponsors start, you know, taking you seriously and wanting to work with you, or at least that was the case a year ago, maybe it's a little bit higher now. Uh, what we did there was actually ran a couple of lead magnets. So we put together a database of hundreds of investors and their contact info. We put together a database of 1800 pitch decks from companies like Tesla and Airbnb and Facebook and all these others. Um, and a couple other like similar lead magnet style posts. And we basically created a card page that was email gate. So you had to put your email into the card page. If you did that, it would redirect you to the Airtable database or the Notion doc or whatever it was. Um, and then we'd use that card page on Twitter and LinkedIn. So how we did that was I would make a post with this blurred out screenshot of the database because, you know, people want to see that it's real. Right. And I, you know, use, you know, good copywriting to say why you should check this out. And I'd use tweet Hunter and Taplio's, um, auto DM feature. So I tell people in the, the copy, you know, like, and reply to this and I'll DM it to you. And then if you use TweetHunter or Taplio on Twitter and LinkedIn respectively, you can set up a post so that when someone replies or retweets or likes it, you automatically send them a DM that you can write ahead of time. And in that DM is where we sent the link to the card page. So the flow was viral Twitter or LinkedIn post, auto DM, card page to ca capture email resource, right? And so then 
card would pipe that email directly into Beehive and we grow the list. I think we, we put up five or six of those over the course of like six weeks uh, last spring and we grew by 15,000 subscribers. So it was insanely effective. Um, I think part of the reason it was effective was because A, the copywriting was good, B, the resources were on point for our niche and C, um, a bunch of the people that we'd been collaborating with who um, swapping recommendations with back and forth, they also had audiences on Twitter and LinkedIn and we got them to comment and engage with those posts right away. And that's actually part of the impetus for uh, for why we, we've started Megaphone too. And you know, we'll talk about that later. Definitely. I love the cross-pollination. It's like the free ads, essentially. And just you were very meticulous about how you went about this and about your scale. Um, and I think you did a lot of really interesting, some could call them growth hacks to, to get there. So no, that's really cool. Don't, don't slander me like that, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> is growth hacks now like a like a negative word is negative sentiment around it no it's fine it's fine i just think it's it's a strategy you know but you're right though paid ads are you know the dirty secret of the newsletter industry 90 percent of all subscribers to the hustle morning brew all these big ones have come from paid ads milk road right they, they all come from paid ads and so that's how we've basically gone from that 25k range to now you know grew to over 90k now back down to 75k and basically what we do is we'd, we'd sell ad spots in the newsletter and take that revenue and just pump 100% of it into paid acquisition, right? So I like to say that I'm, I'm running my business on a 0% margin for as long as I possibly can, <laughs> right? Um, so that we can grow fast. Uh, and that's that's worked for us so far. That's amazing. Yeah, taking those revenues and put it right, right back into the system. That's great. Yeah. So for newsletters that are struggling, what would you say the reason is probably, you know, behind why they're struggling? Well, I'd say it, it depends on what they're struggling with, right? So if they're struggling with keeping people engaged in the newsletter long-term, it could be because A, the content is like low quality, right? Like, let's just be honest about that. I think no one wants to say that that's the reason, but that can legitimately be the reason. Um, other things to look at would be, you know, are you attracting the right folks? Is your landing page and your funnel, and if you're doing content marketing, your content, is that actually speaking to the reader that the newsletter is speaking to? I, I think that, you know, if you haven't been trained in copywriting and you haven't like learned how to do this, it's easy to misinterpret how your audience will interpret what you put out there into the world. And so you really need that consistent funnel in order for, uh, in order to get the engaged readers in the, the niche that you want, right? So I would say look at that as as a big one too. But the the content quality is uh, <laughs> is the thing no one wants to talk about. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Yeah, I'd say if you're struggling to like you know acquire subscribers at a decent like let's say you're running ads and your your CPA is is too high to be scalable and sustainable, then you know look at the Facebook ad libraries of what um, successful newsletters are doing. Look at mine, look at uh, Milk Roads, look at others, right? They all run these meme ads, these testimonial ads. Um, there's there's a few different types that are pretty standard across the industry. And you, know, you can find them just by finding the ad libraries of these newsletters, uh, which are, are public. So um, I would say go there. Any thoughts on newsletter frequency? You know, how often you're sending them? Yeah, I mean, we started with once a week, right? I was writing one deep dive per week and I thought, wow, that's a lot to do. <laughs> but um, when we turned it into a real business and when I started to bring um, 
you know, bring revenue in and, and take things a little bit more seriously earlier this year, um, I added a second issue. And I thought it was important to make that second issue very distinct from the deep dive. You know, no one, people wouldn't necessarily want the same piece of content twice a week. Uh, so I thought it's an opportunity to create like a lower lift curation send where I do a little bit of trend analysis. I put a fresh startup idea out there every week. I have like quotes from, from founders and you know, my picks and links of the week and, and things like that. Um, and we can sell ad spots in that for the same amount because the open rates and the click-through rates are basically the same as our deep dives. So it also gave us more flexibility to put the deep dives, or at least most of them, uh, behind a partial paywall, right? So we want to drive people to our paid subscription, to our membership. Um, so we put up that paywall on the deep dives uh, for all of them each month, except for one. There's one free one per month. Um, with that said, to get like more directly to your, your question, daily newsletters can totally work. Um, Ben's Bytes, uh, a lot of these other AI newsletters, really, really high quality content. They have some newsroom probably in their Slack that they're just like churning through ideas every day. And I think those are really good, but they're there for a different purpose, right? If we were going to add a news component to ours, we'd probably do it weekly as well and have it be a third weekly send. Um, just because we're currently structured in a way where, you know, we're not writing every single day, right? So it's harder to batch content when you're doing news and, and, and everyday reporting and stuff like that. And I think the batching content helps me at least uh, plan ahead and, and not always be scrambling at the, the last minute. So I would say if you're doing news, if you're doing you know, active reporting and things like that, just keeping people up to date with what's going on in your industry, then you know, starting out with once a week and then expanding maybe to three times a week and then expanding to a five day or even a seven day if you really wanted to, you can do that. Um, but think about your time, right? You're going to be spending a lot more time writing. And if you're not big enough to sell ads and sell sell sponsors on, on partnering with you, then um, you know you could probably spend that time more effectively to grow the business in other ways. So until you get big enough, I don't know if it's if it's worth it necessarily. I'd love to hear more about Megaphone. Yeah. Um, so Megaphone is this engagement network, right? Um, basically the dirty secret, similar to the dirty secret of newsletters, paid ads, the dirty secret of social media is that 90% of the big creators that you know became big creators because other big creators were their friends and helped grow them early on by commenting and engaging with their stuff, right? That's just the thing that no one talks about. It all happens in WhatsApp group chats and Telegram group chats and Signal group chats. And, you know, there's also these like shady accounts that try and like get you to pay to, they retweet your stuff, but it's like who, where are those audiences from? So basically I want to make that accessible to everyone, but without the shadiness, right? So these relationships that I was able to build through launch house, let me grow my audience on Twitter and LinkedIn to a combined 90,000. And I just thought, well, why not make that accessible to other founders and other, you know, people who just want to grow their account. So we've been building it now for a couple months. I basically texted a few friends in July and I was like, Hey, would you be interested in this? And hundred percent of them said they wanted to pay for it like right away. And so I was like, all right, I'm onto something here. got to build this now. So, um, yeah, we're building it for a couple months. We've got, um, uh, over hundred creators with 10 million combined followers on the platform across Twitter and LinkedIn. We're doing 20 to 25 million impressions per month. And basically the way it works is you pay a subscription to get access to the network because otherwise our creators would just get spammed with <laughs> thousands of posts per day. Pay a subscription, get access, and then you can spend money on the platform um, to get creators to amplify your posts. So let's say you have a big launch or an announcement coming up, or let's just say you want one creator to comment on every single one of your posts, right? You share the URL with us immediately after you post it. 
we go and route it to the right creators. You can tell us if you want comments or retweets or, or quote tweets um, or the LinkedIn equivalent. And um, we'll route it to the right creators right away and they'll get it through Telegram or WhatsApp and then they'll go comment or retweet or, or what have you on the content. It'll get exposed to their audiences and then some percentage of those people will like the content, follow you, maybe check out your business, maybe you know become a, a, a paying user or whatever the case may be. Um, so that's kind of the funnel. That's kind of how it works. There's a dashboard. We can see performance metrics for how your posts have done, who's engaged with them or not who's engaged with them, but how many people have engaged with them, things like that. So yeah, it's been going really quickly. Uh, we think it can be pretty big. Um, it's totally bootstrapped so far, no plans to raise money for it. Um, but I think it can be, can be pretty big. So it's gonna be a big focus for us throughout this year. Such a cool business. A lot of businesses get they're they're born out of phenomenons that are occurring in maybe not the most not the best way to actually engage with that experience. That's really cool. That's and I love the the SaaS aspect. You're giving yourself recurring revenue, giving opportunities for people to purchase more based on use. Uh, that's really cool. I love that idea. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to bring this thing that you know does happen and you know, isn't really acknowledged out of the shadows and make it accessible to, to everyone. So um, we're excited about it. We've got some positive signals from the social platforms that they're also excited about what we're doing, which is cool. And we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Good to have them on your side. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. If going back to just general startup uh, chat, if there was one thing that kills most startups that no one really talks about, what would you say that what that would Yeah, I mean look, the thing that people don't want to talk about, there's a ton of reasons why startups fail. First of all, right? There's there's hundreds of reasons why startups can fail. But the one that I think people don't like to talk about is issues between co-founders, right? Because that's a really meaty topic. It's a really sensitive topic. You're usually on good terms with your, you know, either former or still current co-founders. Um, and so diving into that is, is something that I think a lot of people just shy away from, but it's a really big killer, right? And it's, it's impossible to get around. If you have that sort of issue, let's say you and you, one of your co-founders have the similar ambitions. You both want to be the CEO, or you both want to be doing the fundraising, doing the press, all that stuff. If that's the case, then, you know, you're going to butt heads and it's going to be hard because there's only one chair, right? It's really important to vet your co-founder incredibly diligently right away early on and trust your gut. If you have an impression that, you know, there's even a one degree difference between your ambitions or what you want to do with the company long term, whether you want to raise venture or bootstrap it, you know, that's an obvious example, but there's a lot of nuance within that. If you're even one degree different, you really need to directly address that with them early and not put the conversation off till when it becomes an issue. Because at that point, you'll have invested a lot of time, blood, sweat, and tears to make this thing a reality. And at that point, it's impossible to, to backtrack. So I'd say that's the number one thing that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Completely agree. I mean, there's so many startup stories of just like horror stories between founders. And you said like some of the most, you know, obvious examples. And there's a million of those in between just in that one category of, of startup founder issues. No, I mean, I would just say it extends beyond just like, you know, your working style or 
what you want your role to be, right? It's also like, it's also deeper than that. It's also like, you know, maybe not spiritual, but like ethical, right? And like how you think through making trade-offs and making decisions and where the line is for your company, right? I think that's really important um, to address early on, especially if you can anticipate, hey, you know, this business might have these types of things come up in the future. Um, I think it's really important to have those conversations really early. It's almost amazing that companies like Airbnb and Uber and some companies you work for <laughs> can get to the scale they are because there's a billion things that could have killed them along the way. Uh, so it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, I don't know the exact number. I, I knew it at one point, I wish I remembered it, but a really high percentage of startups that reach, you know, an IPO or a hundred million dollar plus valuation and have raised, you know, series B or further, I don't know where the exact line is, but a really high percentage of those actually don't have the full founding team anymore, right? Even if it's been a short period of time, or even if it's been a long period of time for them to get there in both cases, usually there's one main founder who sticks around or maybe two. And if there are more then you know, they're involved in some way, but maybe not operationally in the data, it's, there's, it's very, very common for that to happen. Um, more common than I expected when I, when I first became a founder. Um, and so, yeah, I would say don't, you know, you have to make the right decision for you. Don't, um, don't think you have to be tied to something forever and don't let your startup be like the number one part of your identity. You have to exist beyond that in order to, in order to think clearly. And, and my closing question is the same one I ask everyone. Um, tell me either your favorite quote, your most polarizing belief or both. Cool. Yeah. So most polarizing startup related belief is probably that solo founders are more effective than co-founding teams. Uh, once you get a founder before, if you're a first time founder, having people around you who can be sanity checks and validate your thinking, super helpful. But if you've done it before. Being a solo founder lets you move a lot faster um, and needing to take time to like align on things is actually worse for you uh, than the added benefit and accuracy of decision-making that you'll get by, by bringing someone else in. The biggest advantage you have as a founder is moving quickly. Big companies move slow. They take a lot of time to align. The biggest differentiator between a big company and a startup is that a startup can move faster. So the more you can push into that advantage, uh, the better off you are if you know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, obviously, you know, take some time, validate, have more nodes in the network. But um, if you do know what you're doing, then uh, yeah, solo founders the way to go. That's a great one because you've got accelerators that we both know that say to be a part of those accelerators, you need to have a co-founder. So <laughs> I love that. That's that's a really great one. Cool. Yeah, no, I think it's a, a lot of people don't think about it, but um, it's just speed is just so important. You can't underestimate it. 100%. Michael, thank you so much. This has been a ton of fun. Really enjoyed chatting and, and thanks so much for the time. Yeah, Ben, no, thanks for, thanks for having me on, man. This was great. Love your podcast. Um, so yeah, uh, happy to happy to do this. If anyone wants to follow along what we're doing, you can check out Megaphone at megaphone.network. Uh, the newsletter, you can join at join.hauk.news. Hauk is H-O-U-C-K. Uh, and then you can follow me on Twitter at callmehauk or LinkedIn, just my name, Michael Hauk. Awesome. All right, Michael, best of luck with Megaphone, with the newsletter and any other ventures that you're currently working on, because I would not be surprised if there were more. <laughs> yeah, let's touch base in a year. We'll see what else we got cooking. <laughs> All right, have a good one.